Coming up next, Upstate's HealthLink on air. On this week's program, we'll gain some insight into the nagging and sometimes very serious problem of back pain. Any activity that challenges us to work at that activity, so if you're lifting something and you're having to work it really hard, lifting it each time, you're going to put more demands on your spine. Plus, the use of antipsychotic drugs. The psychiatrist should be more familiar with the side effect profile, how efficacious these drugs are, which one you should use over another, and when to switch. And a discussion of what happens when a breast mass is discovered in a patient. Unless we do imaging and at times even a biopsy, we won't know for a fact that it's not cancerous. We'll get our checkup from the neck up and a selection from our healing muse, and that's all coming up right after the news. This is Upstate Medical University's HealthLink on Air, your weekly dose of information about health and medical issues affecting Central New Yorkers from the region's only academic medical center. I'm your host, Linda Cohen. On this week's show, we'll learn about the latest generation of drugs being used to treat psychotic disorders. Plus, we'll explore what happens next when you find a mass in your breast. But first, with back pain so endemic, we get the latest information about spine care. This is Upstate's HealthLink on air. Linda Cohen here with you. You know, it's estimated that 80% of adults report lower back pain at some point in their lives, and 10 to 15% of all sports-related injuries do involve the spine. Low back pain accounts for the more lost person hours than any other type of occupational injury. And it's the most frequent cause of activity limitation in people under the age of 45. So it's important to understand not only what the spine is and what it does, but most importantly, how to approach spine treatment when there's a problem. Here to tell us all about all of this is Denise Karsten. She's a registered nurse and chiropractor specializing in the spine, and she's part of the Upstate Brain and Spine team at Upstate Medical University. Welcome, Denise. Thanks so much for coming in. Oh, thank you for having me. Well, this is a problem. This is a topic very near and dear to my heart because I think, like me, many Americans have experienced, you know, or, or know someone who've had back problems or back pain. I guess I wanted to just start and ask you, why do you think that is? In other words, is there something about our spine that makes us more vulnerable to that kind of injury or problem? Well, I think that, first of all, we were not meant to stand on two feet. We were meant to use all four extremities, which is where we evolved from. So we're trying to adapt to our environment, which requires us to stand up all the time or sit down all the time. So I think the other piece is as we have emerged into a more of a technological world, we have less activity. We're more sedate. Um, we sit more. We expect our bodies to sit for 10 hours at a time at meetings um, um, day after day instead of our ancestors who were out building fences or farming the, um, the the land. So they had a much more active lifestyle than what we have more currently. More mobility, therefore more maybe more flexibility. And and it strikes me also that occupational ergonomics or, or the way we approach our, our lifestyle today, the way we sit 
looking at a computer, the way we sit in meetings, the fact that people slouch, that kind of thing, can also play a role. Oh, absolutely. You know, we're seeing so much more of the younger, um, the children coming in with the backpacks on the back or the posture of, of slouching down and looking and playing games on their phone, looking at their phones. We're seeing a whole nother set of issues arising secondary to postural changes um, with the rounded shoulders and the forward head um, carriage. So that's definitely impacting us. So just briefly, give me a little bit of an overview of the kinds of things that contribute to spine problems. For example, as we talked about poor mobility and, and bad biomechanics, what are some of the other factors that actually lead to it? Well, I think for sure, you know, if you have muscle imbalances, if you have a muscle weakness on one side versus the other side, if you have um, a repetitive motion um, type of of job or position, um, I think that if we have any 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 activity that challenges us to work at that activity. So if you're lifting something and you're having to work it really hard, lifting it each time, you're going to put more demands on your spine. And obviously, aging plays a role as well. Well, and we're not, we're not, I'm sorry, Linda, to no, interrupt you, yeah. but we're also not sure about what the familial piece is, or so, nobody's really come out and said that there's a, there's a actually hereditary or a familial piece to back, to spine camps, pain. So that's still, you know, a big question mark um, with relation to spine pain. That makes sense. And even things like posture, which is something that you think is something, I mean, when you look at a one-year-old running around, they start walking, or 18-month-old, they seem to have this wonderful, elegant posture. They, they just wander through the world kind of effortlessly. And then you look at someone in their 30s, sometimes even in their 20s, and they're hunched over already, as you mentioned, because of all these other issues. So posture obviously must it's play, huge. play it's a, a big huge role. It's a huge piece, yeah. absolutely. Well, okay, so basically... You are in a role now that's very, very interesting. It's kind of a new concept, I think, this idea of being a primary spine practitioner. So explain that to us. What does that mean? You know, a primary spine practitioner, is it is a fairly new role. It, it, there is no other role like it in central New York. Um, they have implemented it in about eight different places across the United States. And what the primary spine practitioner role comes from, has evolved from, is the need to rethink frontline management of spine pain. The need to say that how we're doing it hasn't changed statistics. I mean, we have uh, over 300% increase in, um, in spinal surgery, over 600% increase in um, opioid use, you know, over, I, I want to say it's like over 400% in epidural steroidal injections. And yet the conservative care piece, which is um, manual medicine, physical therapy, self-efficacy, having the patient figure out what's going on and having them um, own the issue is up about 36%. So we're not making any strides financially um, with cost effective for both the patient and um, the community. So the whole idea of, of looking at a frontline primary spine practitioner who is, you can equate it to a primary, their, their PCP for the spine. So that when that patient initially comes in and they're in acute back pain, the program, the role has actually 
been shown to decrease the chances of that episode becoming a chronic disabling um, condition. And it's all about how fast we act and, and how appropriate the care is on that first visit. It also includes, which is, is something that we don't often do, which is that whole soft touch piece. It's the words we use. It is when we tell a patient who doesn't know a lot about the terms and we tell them they have, they have severe degenerative changes or now they have access to their films um, on their uh, patient portal, they have access to results and they say severe, that automatically sets somebody into a place where they're, they become frightened of it, they become paralyzed, if you will, um, of what they can do, what they can't do, how it's, how it's now going to manage their life instead of them managing the situation. I think that is really a key point, and I think that much research that I've seen over the years has begun to look at this quote-unquote placebo effect, and while we would poo-poo it as saying, oh, it's only a placebo effect, the truth is the mind body connection is a really powerful one. And if you believe that you are degenerating as opposed to you believe that maybe you have resilience and flexibility and you can heal, I think that really can definitely affect outcome. Let me just ask you, you were mentioning a lot of statistics in terms of the kinds of interventions we have done, the increase in surgeries, the increase in, in, st in steroid uh, injections, that type of thing. Have we seen concomitant positive outcomes as a result, or are you saying that while these things have gone up, the outcomes have not necessarily improved? No, the, the value of care and the outcomes has definitely not improved. I mean, for an individual patient who absolutely requires surgery, yes, their outcomes have improved. <clears throat> but we are still spending an exorbitant amount of money. We're still losing um, a lot of work time, wages lost, time lost from work than we did prior. So the interventions we're doing aren't really being as effective as we'd like to see them be. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on air. I'm Linda Cohen along with chiropractor and spinal specialist Denise Karsten. She's also a registered nurse. And we're talking about back pain and how to basically approach it. So obviously in your new role, um, as a primary spine practitioner, you are involved in the careful analysis and diagnosis of a, someone who comes to you with acute back pain. Am I correct? Yes. And then what happens? Help us understand what's the logical sequence and how does it differ from what you were describing earlier, sending someone to a, an orthopedic surgeon or a back surgeon specifically or to perhaps a pain center? Well, I, I think, first of all, the primary spine practitioner is looking at the patient um, as the center, um, as so the epicenter, if you will, um, of the care arena versus a specialist looking at the patient through what they know and what their specialty is, which is wonderful if you need that specialty. If not, then the patient is kind of left trying to figure out where should I go? I still have this pain. I'm not a surgical candidate. The in injections didn't work. What 
what do I do? And, you know, I, I, I equate it for patients similar to wanting to buy a raisin bran, a, a, a cereal in the grocery store. But now you're standing in front of all the cereals and you're trying to decide what is it that I should, which one should I choose? Which one would be best for me? And so a lot of spine care tends to be almost like it's grocery shopping, trying to figure out what should I heard this works, I heard that works. When a patient comes in to see me, I spend an hour or more, usually more, with a patient and I get a very thorough history. I want to hear everything that they've been through. I want to hear how it hurts, when it hurts. Um, I want to hear what provokes it. I want to hear how did it evolve. And all of the words a person uses helps me figure out what have I got here. You know, is this something, which part of the architecture of the spine is the causative agent or is the toddler, if you will, having a temper tantrum in your back. So I look at that. We look at the imaging. I sit with the patient. We look at the imaging together so the patient has a very clear picture of what's going on with them. But one point I want to make here, and I think what's very befuddling to a lot of people, is there isn't really always a one-to-one correlation between what it shows on an MRI and what the patient feels. Uh, the, or the functionality, for that matter. Am I correct? Oh, in that? Linda, you, you make such a valuable, such a valid point. Um, there are patients who will come in and they'll say, "I have left leg pain. I know it's my L four five disc. That's what was on the MRI." And then when you look at the MRI, it's over on the right side. So it, the, an MRI is only valuable if it if you can clinically connect it to what the patient looks like. What's most important is how is the patient presenting. Secondarily is, does the MRI support that? So it's, it's not the other way around. It can be misleading, in <laughs> Absolutely. other words. Okay, so what do you basically do then with the patient? Just help us, take us through that a little bit. You do the analysis, you, do, you take a full history, and then do you actually attempt some treatment to see what seems to work and does that lead you down a particular path? Oh, that's a great question. So once once you have the history and physical, and then I do orthopedic testing, I do um, neurological testing, once all of those pieces are together, um, then we sit down and I try and figure out what is my best intervention for what I think I have going on here. I'll trial that intervention, and then once they come back to me, if they respond to that intervention, now I know where to refer them to. If they don't, I will try another intervention. So the intervention can become therapeutic for the patient, but important to me, it becomes diagnostic for me as a tool. And then whatever intervention seems to give them the most release, relief, then you move them into the direction of that provider. And in your experience, is there um, a holistic approach? In other words, are there alternative therapies that you find equally helpful to the more traditional, conventional types of things like surgery or these kinds of shots or opioid you know, treatment, for example? I, I do. I mean, I'll try to pull from anything I can pull from. So I, I have acupuncturists that I've worked with. I have massage therapists that have been invaluable after a car accident when nothing is showing on the MRI, but a lot of it is soft tissue damage um, or injury. Um, which does not show on Which does MRI. not show. No, does not show. Um, I will look at some nutritional pieces or send them to somebody who can help them look at nutritional pieces. Um, we look at weight loss. How do you approach a weight loss? 
last piece, um, especially if you're having spine pain. Um, of course, there's the traditional, which is your physical therapists and chiropractors. And there are over 100 physical therapists and chiropractors in the community who've been trained as primary spine practitioners as I have been trained. And that's my referral base. Well, it sounds very exciting and also sounds really almost like a key concept here because I think many people that I know who have experienced back pain and problems do seem to find that they go around in circles yes. and it's very frustrating and as you said lost wages and all kinds of other issues so I want to thank you this is very exciting thank you so much for coming in and sharing your perspective on all of this and and I think this primary your brain in, in um, spine clinic or uh, will obviously prove very, very valuable to our community. My guest has been Denise Karsten. She's a registered nurse and chiropractor and a, spine, a primary spine practitioner with the Upstate Brain and Spine Team. I'm Linda Cohen, and you're listening to Upstate's HealthLink On Air. Coming up next, the latest generation of drugs being used to treat psychotic disorders. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on air. Upstate's Health Link on air, Linda Cohen along with you. Well, the use of antipsychotic drugs have had a major impact on the treatment of patients with psychosis, which can include things like schizophrenia, mania, bipolar disorder, severe depression, and anxiety. But there's a new generation of these drugs, and here with more on all of this and their impact on patients is Ryan O'Dell. He's an MD-PhD student at Upstate Medical University. Welcome, Ryan. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. So I understand about this new generation of antipsychotic drugs being used to help patients with psychosis. I want to talk more about that, but I thought we'd start with helping our listeners understand what we mean by an antipsychotic. What exactly is that? So uh, an antipsychotic is something you would prescribe primarily um, or at least um, traditionally to treat the symptoms of schizophrenia or psychosis, things like hallucinations, delusions, um, disorganized uh, thoughts or thought processes. Um, so that's what they were originally designed for, is to treat psychosis, which is in the name an antipsychotic. Um, so they've been around for quite a while? Oh, yeah. They've been actually, so they've been around, they call the first generation antipsychotics, were originally developed and FDA approved in the 1950s. Mm. So they've been along, around for a long time. And some of those drugs you might have heard of are Haldol, um, uh, Thorazine is another drug in this first generation that's been along, around for a long period of time. Were those mostly too kind of quiet, or were they mostly sedative, or were they also an attempt to actually uh, help with disordered thinking? I mean, do things to actually restructure the way the brain was working? So they were actually originally approved only for the treatment of schizophrenia, and they seemed to have their greatest efficacy in treating what we call the positive symptoms of schizophrenia, the hallucinations and the delusions that are sometimes associated with this disorder. Um, but they actually didn't seem to do as great of a job in helping uh, treat the disordered thought content. 
Um, then that's where the, the new generation of antipsychotics came in. So we're in now the second generation? The second and even third generation based on how these drugs act on different receptors in the brain. And that's, that's how they categorize them. Yeah, so what is the significance? In other mm -hmm. words, time-wise, how did this all evolve? You said in the yeah. 50s you had the original ones like Haldol and Thorazine. When did the second generation come into play? So they came into play, uh, Risperidone, Risperdal was the first one in, in the 1990s. And what researchers found was that they have a common mechanism of what we call D2 or dopamine 2 antagonism. So this specific dopamine receptor in the brain, they blocked the action of dopamine on it. Um, so they were antagonists. That was the first generation. They found with these second generation antipsychotics, they, they acted on other receptors in the brain, specifically the serotonin uh, pathways. So they found that there were um, you know, potentially different uh, pharmacological or pharmodynamic um, properties, which then translated into different clinical uses. They were approved for other um, mental disorders that you could treat. So I'm, I'm not a, uh, I'm not clear exactly. Mm -hmm. So this, when you said the second generation, do you mean now the third generation, or is there still the a third, new one? Yep. So the second generation was the 1990s, and then in about Let's see, 2000, and there's two new drugs in 2015, one named Brexpiprazole, the other Cariprazine, uh, and the third generate or the third generation uh, antipsychotics, that's that class they belong to. Um, and they really just classified it on how these drugs act on different receptors in the brain. So that was a lot more recently, like in the the 2000s, 2000, 2010 and on. It's interesting because there was a very large gap between the 1950 drugs yeah. and the 1990. That's a long way in terms of you know drug development. Yeah. Was it that there wasn't as much motivation or was it that the science wasn't there? It's my understanding that the, the science wasn't there and then they also, the, these drugs weren't doing um, you know, from both the patient's and the physician's perspective, a good enough job of actually treating the symptoms of schizophrenia. So that motivated us to find new medications, potentially through new pathways in the brain, that would be able to better treat um, all of the symptoms of schizophrenia. I would imagine also as brain science evolved over time and understanding what was you mentioned receptors mm -hmm. and, and where things were in the brain and how we could maybe intervene in the brain, that probably helped. Correct. So yes. what's the significance of this newest generation? In other words, is it just um, kind of another quick step up from the second generation, or are there significant changes? So I, I would say it's closer to a quick step up. The big jump between, or the big difference between the first and second generation antipsychotics was actually the side effect profile, um, as well as the clinical efficacy for those negative symptoms. Um, we talked about the disorganized thought, and then some people with schizophrenia um, become very catatonic, slowed down, amotivated. The second generation antipsychotics helped with those symptoms. And they had actually less uh, what we call extrapyramidal syndrome or symptom side effects, which people get strange movements they can't control. You, I don't know if you've ever seen anybody for years on an antipsychotic has something called, a lot of times they develop tardive dyskinesia, where they have these uncontrollable movements in their mouth and tongue. So the second generation antipsychotics had a lot of lower rate of these side effects, which was, you know, great. Uh, however, they came with their own risks, uh, such as something called metabolic syndrome. So people on these antipsychotics would gain a lot of weight. They may develop diabetes, high blood pressure, high lipid levels. So they kind of traded one side effect for another, in essence. The third generation antipsychotics, 
that act a little bit differently on these receptors are still unfortunately associated with a lot of these same side effects, but they actually have better efficacy at treating some of the, the symptoms of schizophrenia than the second generations did. So you've been alluding to schizophrenia largely, but Correct. I had mentioned in the introduction that there are a number of psychotic mm -hmm. conditions, whether they be mania, the, which obviously is the almost the obverse or the reverse of depression, mm -hmm. you know, where people are just have this sense of euphoria and unrealistic uh, expectations, a lot of energy, and they kind of do things perhaps that are irrational and dangerous. Yes. And then you have bipolar, where people go into both categories. Am I correct yep, in these correct. in these descriptions? So, are these drugs being used for both of? For basically all of these things? Yes. So in terms of FDA approval, a lot of these second and third generation antipsychotics, in fact, all of them are approved for not only schizophrenia, but bipolar mania, bipolar depression. Um, and they're actually dosed very similarly. You want to get the dose up to higher levels and block those dopamine receptors to treat both the schizophrenia and the bipolar disorder. But it, Go ahead. Oh, I, was just, I just wanted to mention there are also uh, a handful of them like aripiprazole, quetiapine, um, and uh, olanzapine are also approved for major depressive disorder, um, but as adjunct therapies, so an add-on to an SSRI that a patient may already be on. And so that was actually FDA approved to treat these depressive episodes that aren't necessarily associated with bipolar. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on air. I'm Linda Cohen, along with MD-PhD student Ryan O'Dell. We're talking about the newest generation of antipsychotic drugs and their uses. So are these newest generation, are all these drugs that we've talked about? So mm -hmm. I guess what I need to understand is the second generation and third are both being used currently. Correct. One did not replace the other. Correct. And in, in fact, the second seemed to be prescribed more only because the third generations are so new I see. and there's not as much research behind them. I'd say the most prescribed third generation antipsychotic is probably Abilify or Aripiprazole. Mm -hmm. um, you'll see that a lot. You can use it for acute agitation as well um, if given when somebody, either um, an adolescent or an adult or in a state of acute agitation, you can get Aripiprazole or Abilify to help calm you down. So. And it's interesting because we are seeing some of those drugs advertised to the general public. Yes, yeah. Which is now it probably a new, a new tactic for the drug companies anyway to get people to know about drugs and then go to their physician and demand them or ask for them. Right. But it's interesting to see a drug like that, which is very highly, um, you know, for a highly specified problem being kind of um, marketed in a general way. Are they effective? And are they used just for law? I mean, are they curative? Are they just for crises? Just give us a feeling for yeah. how they are effective. So you can use them, most of these, or a lot of these anti second generation antipsychotics for both, both a crisis and more especially an acute psychosis, a crisis if somebody has a relapse um, with their schizophrenia, for example, or goes into a uh, manic episode. You can use it for an acute event, um, but you can also use them for the maintenance doses of patients with schizophrenia or bipolar uh, or major depressive disorder. You can use them, you know, you're going to be on these for years and potentially um, lifelong drugs. Um, they don't necessarily, I would say, cure the disorder. They don't change, they affect the, the chemistry and the neurochemistry in your brain, um, but they don't, if you go off these antipsychotics, a lot of times you can relapse. It's not like it erases or totally cures the disease. So unfortunately, many patients have to be on these drugs um, indefinitely. 
Um, Are they singly prescribed or do they need to be prescribed by a psychiatrist? Does primary care play a role here and in what way? So I'd say in, in my experience as a, as a medical student, what I've seen is that uh, primary care physicians or their family providers seem to be more comfortable prescribing antidepressants like the SSRIs, um, like, like Prozac, Prozac, Paxil, um, Celexa, things of that nature. Um, you know, there's something that I, I feel if, if they, you know, get familiar with the literature, they could be comfortable prescribing them, but more often than not, their patients are also being followed by a psychiatrist, um, and they defer to the, the psychiatrist's specialty uh, in prescribing these medications. They should be more, the psychiatrist should be more familiar with the side effect profile, how efficacious these drugs are, which one you should use over another, and when to switch. And also, I would think the dosage and yes. something about the time of onset or the amount of time it takes to build up in the system, all of these are very... Yes, they're very different. Even for each second-generation and third-generation antipsychotic are so different in their chemical profile and how they affect the brain. Um, and some of them, as you mentioned, for example, brexpiprazole or cariprazine, they may take two or three weeks um, to reach a steady state in the, in the system. So you may actually have um, a couple weeks before you see um, any improvement in the symptoms of what you're attempting to treat. And then, of course, there's always the problem of thinking it's not working and you right. might try to introduce another drug or or DC that drug, right. you know, and discontinue that drug, and then you're potentially in hot water. <laughs> right, and even as, that's actually a big contributor to patient compliance as well. They feel the, the drug isn't working, so they may go off of it, or if they get adverse side effects, they may actually want to, you know, they may self-discontinue the medication, um, which is also dangerous. That can actually worsen the side effects if you just stop taking an antipsychotic that you've been on for a long period of time. So I guess the takeaway here is it really should be monitored and perhaps prescribed and monitored under the care of a psychiatrist who understands the whole yes. psychopharmacological world. Correct, yes. And all of that. Now, a little bit of time we have left. Mm -hmm. You and Dr. Thomas Schwartz, who's the interim chair of psychiatry at Upstate Medical University, have written a handbook about these new drugs. Tell us about it very briefly. Yeah. What What is it? Why did you write it? And what's it for? So it's really, it was written as a um, sort of a comprehensive review of the, the data we have on these second and third generation antipsychotics. Um, and it's more written for prescribers, physicians, um, medical students who want to learn more about the pharmacodynamics and um, pharmacology of these drugs so they feel more comfortable using them in a clinical setting. Um, we talk about what the drugs are approved for, their, some of their off-label uses. If you use them, for example, at lower doses, they may have anti-anxiety properties, antidepressive properties. And we also talk in detail about the the pharmacodynamics and pharmacology of these drugs and why, you know, one second-generation antipsychotic might have this side of profile based on the receptors it's binding to and why another one might have a different profile. Um, so it's a very technical, I would say, handbook that was written more for prescribers um, and students who are um, prospectively going into psychiatry and want to learn more about these drugs. And you're planning on going. I know you're going to be receiving your degree in this year or yes. so. And you're planning on going into psychiatry and do, continuing to do research. Is that oh, it? Oh, yes, definitely. I'd like to, to continue research, especially in a, in a psychi psychiatric residency program that has um, a research track. Very exciting. It's very exciting to hear about all of this new, you know, these very helpful drugs and Obviously, these have been very, very serious diseases, and people are now understanding that they need to be treated, you know, 
pharmacologically, and that's very exciting that this new stuff is available today. Thank you. Thank you so much for coming in. My guest has been Ryan O'Dell. He's an MD-PhD student at Upstate Medical University. Thanks again. I'm Linda Cohen. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on air. Hi, I'm psychologist Dr. Rich O'Neill with this week's checkup from the neck up. My one wild and wonderful life, or what and how? Well, folks, you know how some days we wake up thinking about all the stuff in the schedule and it feels, mm, say, uninspired? not seriously depressing, in which case we might want to talk to a psychology type like me, but less than thrilling, weighty. Now, of course, we all have those days from time to time, but what to do when we're stuck, stuck, stuck in a rut, 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 and life has lost its zip and joy and wow, and the usual pick-me-ups no longer pick-me-up? How about ask ourselves a question? What question, you might ask? Well, I just heard one again with magic in it. What do I want to do today with my one wild and wonderful life? Isn't that great? What do I want to do today with my one wild and wonderful life? Psychologically speaking, you'll notice there are some key elements it succinctly and alliteratively, alliteratively points us to what wild and wonderful we want. WWW, in short. Because living from want rather than have to is exciting. And it implies choice, us choosing WW, wild and wonderful. And it points to today, the present, now because we have but one life to make WW. And it points to doing rather than ruminating. And we can use it for short term and long term, today and the whole kit and caboodle big picture. And this leads to another question. Like if I'm having, for example, dreadfully boring committee meetings, the question, how? Can I throw myself into the next one to make it more WW for us all? Like, maybe be well prepared in advance and willing to listen as well as jabber and positive and cooperative. Well, that said, off I go to do WW. I'm Dr. Rich, <laughs> WW O'Neill. Thanks for tuning in. Next up, what happens next when you find a mass in your breast? You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on air.
This is Upstate's HealthLink on air. Linda Cohen along with you. If you find a lump or other change in your breast, often the first thought involves the C word. But there's more to the story that needs to be known. And here to help us with this dilemma is Dr. Sam Benjamin. He's assistant professor of medicine specializing in hematology and oncology at Upstate Medical University. Welcome, Dr. Benjamin. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, Linda. So, of course, when one discovers a lump in their breast, the first thing that they fear is breast cancer. But obviously, that's not the full story. So help us understand, what are the important steps that need to be taken? And and what does one need to understand when this occurs? So, Linda, there are uh, usually two situations that arise when the breast lump is found. Uh, One situation is when uh, patients have screening mammograms um, uh, routinely, and and those detect, like, calcifications or findings in the breast that are suspicious. Second situation that can arise is a relatively rare rare in, uh, in incidence is when the patient herself feels a lump, okay? And that's a little different situation as well. Uh, in both cases, the first step would be to um, get in touch with their primary care physician and let them know that this has happened. Now, in case of a screening mammography, for example, you know, it's usually ordered by the physicians, by the by the patient's gynecologist or primary care doctor, so they are they will be uh, um, um, notified. Notified, anyway. yeah, that's correct. But um, I think the most important thing is if the patient herself, or in some certain rare cases himself, uh, detects a mass, that they should not hesitate to contact their primary care doctor or primary care provider, uh, whether it's a nurse practitioner, a PA, or a physician, to get in touch with them as soon as possible to have it. Uh, investigated. Yeah, now uh, it was something that I came across which mm-hmm. I wasn't I wasn't um, knowledgeable mm-hmm. about that breast lumps can be somewhat common and often they are non-cancerous mm-hmm. or they're benign, especially even in younger women. Correct. So, I guess as you said, the mm-hmm. first thing to do is to speak with your physician mm-hmm. and then generally what follows from there. And then uh, usually, I mean, if this has been uh, self-palpated, meaning the patient herself has found this, then imaging would be the next step. Um, Either So so if a a mammogram had not been done, but it was was discovered inadvertently during showering Mm -hmm. or something. And actually, I don't know if so many women today are doing self-exams. Because at one time it was hugely pushed as mm-hmm. a major thing for everyone to do mm-hmm. regularly, mm-hmm. and it seems to have fallen away as, a, as something that people right. are doing. If you consider the fact that uh, most patients um, routinely see their primary providers maybe once a year for an annual physical, um, and sometimes not even that, it's very important that we do not forget the importance of s- self-inspection. Okay. Um, it is true that majority of uh, self-palpated um, uh, lesions may not be cancerous. Uh, they could be fibroadenomas. Uh, they could be simple cysts. Um, it could be an infection. Um, so there, there, there are different uh, possibilities in, in, a, in the differential diagnosis. But ultimately, uh, I think it's very important, though, that, uh, that unless we do imaging and at times even a biopsy, we won't know for a fact that it's not cancerous. So the bottom line is if it's been found either in a routine mammo mm-hmm. 
mammogram mm -hmm. or by self-palpation, mm -hmm. you want to speak to your primary care physician and the next step generally would be to do what? Would you see a breast surgeon? Correct. Would you see an oncologist? Right. Help us understand what the next... Right. Uh, so most imaging centers have the ability to do um, 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 ultrasound guided or um, uh, MRI guided uh, biopsies. Um, so, um, so they don't necessarily have to see a surgeon right away to get a biopsy done. Um, um, but oftentimes the primary provider, once they get a diagnosis, suspicious of cancer even, uh, they do often uh, refer the patient directly to a surgeon. When you talk about these different uh, methods of guided mm -hmm. biopsies, mm -hmm. are they always, um, are they ever fine needle aspiration, for example, which I know is a little less invasive, mm -hmm. or is there really an actual uh, excision? Excision, yeah. Uh, the, so the, you know, the standard of care would be a core biopsy, okay? A core biopsy allows us to get enough tissue uh, at the very get-go to get enough tissue to be able to make a diagnosis one way or the other. Fine needle aspirations are good for if the, if the uh, say the ultrasound of the breast is highly suggestive of a cyst or, or an abscess. Um, but if it's a fairly a solid mass, uh, it needs to have, a, a, then uh, ideally it should be a core biopsy. Which mm -hmm. means actually going in and cutting out some tissue. Right. It's Again, it's not the same as taking an entire piece of breast out. It's just, you know, getting enough a sample of tissue to make a firm diagnosis one way or the other. Mm -hmm. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on air. I'm Linda Cohen along with oncologist Dr. Sam Benjamin. We're talking about what to do when you find or should you find a breast lump. Mm -hmm. Is anything different about how you would approach this if the patient were male? Mm -hmm. Because I think it's not as well understood or known or widely known that men can also get breast cancer. Right. Um, male breast cancer is obviously relatively rare. It's 1% of all breast cancers. So, you know, uh, in terms, but uh, that uh, said, I mean, there has been, um, as um, we uh, deal with the uh, epidemic of obesity um, and other health conditions that, pre that increase the risk in women, it's also increasing the risk in men. And uh, therefore, it is not, um, I, I personally have several patients who've had male breast cancer. And so it is something that is becoming more and more recognized um, and therefore should be in the radar of the patient and the physicians. But in terms of your steps mm -hmm. or how you would approach it, is Correct. there anything different? Not not really. I mean, I think that you can follow the same steps. In fact, uh, um, male breast cancers are much easier to get to because of the of the paucity of breast tissue in many cases, um, so they're very easily accessible. Um, the key thing to, to, I think the key point that I'd like to make is that uh, detecting uh, breast cancer in a male at, at a very early stage is critically important just as it is in the, in the, fe in the, in the female yeah. patients, in, in women. Uh, the re and oftentimes, um, the historical data has shown that the reason why men fare worse is because they tend to either ignore it or um, it detect, gets detected at later stages. Not necessarily oh. that male breast cancer patients do 
worse off in terms of the biology of the cancer. That's very mm -hmm. interesting, mm -hmm. and that's a very key point. So what you're saying is that perhaps people don't take it as seriously thinking, oh, it can't happen to a male, mm -hmm. but in fact, if they do pay attention and there is early diagnosis and treatment, they will do as well as women. Correct. With the same opportunities. Opportunities. Um, one of the few differences I would say is that uh, a male breast cancer patient uh, even devoid of any family history, regardless of age, should get genetic testing automatically. Because is there, again, a BRCA gene that That's plays right. a role yep. here as well? That is correct. Very yep. interesting. So it's not just the idea of our obesity playing a role, but there can be genetic factors. There could be genetic factors. That's so right. how important, going back to that, how important is family history in the consideration mm -hmm. that you might approach, mm -hmm. the way you might approach somebody who is, you've identified a lump? Correct. So family history is one of the several factors that we take into consideration when we consider the risk of uh, a lump being cancerous, for sure. Um, and, uh, and obviously, uh, going to the, uh, in, uh, you know, the screening guidelines can differ as well. Um, in fact, even without being a carrier for the BRCA1 and 2 mutations, uh, any uh, strong family history can warrant screening in a, in a woman who, uh, with, a, with a first, second, or third degree relative who has breast cancer 10 years prior to, their diagno prior to the diagnosis of that relative. Oh, really? And I'll so give you an example. Yeah, give me yeah. an example. So if, um, if, a, if a woman knows that her mother was diagnosed at the age of, um, say, 45, which is an early breast cancer, and has been tested for the BRCA1 and 2 gene, the mother has, and was still found to be ne negative, we would still recommend some sort of screening 10 years prior to... So at 35. Exactly, yep. Wow. And that is, uh, so that's important to recognize that we, we even though um, we, there are more... Um, the public is aware of the BRCA1 and 2 gene mutations. Uh, those are still relatively rare, uh, less than 10%. Uh, there are other factors that come into play that may uh, put women at risk for breast cancer and genetic factors that we have yet to uh, pinpoint, even with uh, extended panel I testing. I think that's very, very interesting. Let me ask you about this this idea about when a person is waiting to get results. Let's say they've had a core biopsy. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's it seems there are a lot of emotional considerations Correct. for the patient waiting. Mm -hmm. And I guess my point, is, my question to you is, should they have to wait for long periods for mm -hmm. the pathology to come back? Mm -hmm. I mean, is there an effort to kind of expedite this so that the answer is more um, speedy, yeah. to, you know, available? So, you know, it differs from institution to institution. Uh, thankfully, at Upstate, we have a turnaround time from the time the biopsy is done of maybe 48 hours. 48 to 72 hours, which is very, very quick. Um, and um, not to uh, give undue attention, but uh, at, the, at Upstate, we have a multidisciplinary uh, program that allows patients to access multiple different disciplines uh, at the same time, which I think helps to alleviate some of the anxiety that comes with the diagnosis. So say a patient has had a biopsy that is positive for invasive breast cancer or even pre-invasive breast cancer like ductal carcinoma in situ is a pre-invasive, which still warrants surgery and other interventions. Um, having the uh, opportunity to be evaluated um, um, uh, by multiple disciplines 
by which I mean surgical oncology, medical oncology, and radiation oncology at the same time, not necessarily all three at the same time, but one or more, um, allows the patient to get a very much more comprehensive um, approach to their condition. And maybe a feeling of safety net. Correct. Because you have all of these specialists kind of working collaboratively Absolutely. to target your right. problem. So um, so what's the option? What are the options these days? I don't mm -hmm. want to run out mm -hmm. of time. Mm -hmm. Help us understand, mm -hmm. just briefly, what are the options? Let's say you mm -hmm. find out it's mm -hmm. cancer, mm -hmm. male, female, either Correct. way. Yeah. What are the options? Right. Uh, it's been well established over the last 20 plus years that uh, it is absolutely not necessary in many situations to have the entire breast out. In other words, a mastectomy. Studies after studies have shown that patients who have early stage breast cancer, uh, smaller tumors and not locally advanced breast cancers do benefit from breast conserving surgery followed by radiation and the outcomes are as good and sometimes, and there's some suggestion maybe even better than mastectomies. Do they need chemo as well? Not necessarily. Wow. So um, uh, there are recent studies that have shown that many women that we used to treat uh, with chemotherapy automatically, especially younger women, do not absolutely require chemotherapy because of the uh, advent of genet uh, molecular testing of their tumor. So very briefly, I know it's a controversial subject sure. these days. What's the bottom line about mammography? I mean, what's the screening? I know that some some governmental groups say it start at age 50. Others say start at age 40, and, and there's different recommendations. Right. What do you tell your patients? I think there are the general guidelines still hold. The uh, United States Preventive Task Force has come out with the recommendation um, that regardless of family history, women above 50, should, 50 and over should get screening at least once every two years. Um, we, but I think it's very important to un understand that we need to individualize patient, based on the patient's personal and family history. Uh, like the example that I gave you earlier, uh, a woman who has a family history should probably get screening much earlier. So it's never one size fits all. That is correct. Thank you so much. My guest has been Dr. Sam Benjamin, Assistant Professor of Medicine specializing in hematology oncology at Upstate Medical University. I'm Linda Cohen. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. And now, Deirdre Nealon, editor of Upstate Medical University's literary and visual arts journal, The Healing Muse, with this week's selection. Thank you, Linda. I'd like to salute the fall season by reading two poems from our founding editor, Dr. Bonnie St. Andrews. Bonnie was truly an inspiring teacher, a gifted poet, and a careful editor. Her legacy at The Healing Muse is one that challenges us with each new issue. First, I'll read Masons for the Muse, here she speaks to the artist's labors. Masons for the muse. You never meant to obliterate this building. It's such a pity. You just grabbed your lunch pail and whistled off to another hard-hatted day building the muse's city. But it's dangerous work, delicate as igniting dynamite, this moving of one little word, for it may be the keystone, linchpin, eye beam and you watch your whole poem topple sky reverberating with broken rhythms and the violence of verbs crashing like granite blocks to the unyielding blacktop, fragments of adjectives powdering those nouns broken open on that metaphorical ground, ruin, despair, and rubble everywhere. 
Yes, it's gritty, the prodigious work, the cleanup and precision then required to syllable by syllable rebuild the skyline in your section of the Muses City. Next, Instruction at Artist Camp takes a more playful look at how one crafts a poem. Instructions at Artist Camp. You come to nature with all your theories and she knocks them all flat. To fish for the invisible, bait the hook with your own heart and land divine assignments. How good then the taste of words, like ripened fruit or bread, round and ripe and wise. Thank you for joining us for Upstate's HealthLink on Air, brought to you each week by Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York. Join us again next week when we explore the do's and don'ts to aging with grace, plus the effects of climate change and natural disasters on health, and the importance of organ donation in saving lives. If you'd like to listen again to this week's show, you can find a podcast of it on iTunes. Just search for HealthLink on Air. That's all one word. And to keep up with all the goings on at Upstate, you can look for us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, or check out the What's Up at Upstate blog. That's at upstate.edu slash what's up. I'm Linda Cohen. Thanks for listening.